a couple years ago, I was invited to this couple's house, a couple that is dear to our hearts. They live there on the coast, on the Pacific Ocean, and when you get up to their home, you're up on top of this massive hill, and you look to the east, and you see these mountains, beautiful mountains, and you look to the right, and you just see the Pacific Ocean. It's just endless. So we get invited there to have dinner, and my wife and I, we show up with some friends, and we're just very excited to go and spend time with our friends and some of these uh, people who invited us over there. Uh, and as it got darker, the evening came upon us, we started getting binoculars and looking out into the expanse of the sky, and the, the host was showing us different planets and different stars. Uh, and while this was going on, the back door was wide open. The back door was completely wide open. Uh, and as the night got darker and darker... Uh, the host, the owner, uh, went into the home and he closed the screen door. He closed the screen door and, and I'm just out there just looking at all the stars and I'm like, all right, this is just beautiful. Uh, and I'm like, you know, it's getting pretty chilly, so I'm going to go inside. And so I make a beeline back into the house and before I know it, I am face first through a screen door. And it was bad, because if you didn't notice, I mean, this is not, you know, this is a pretty expensive house, and that screen door probably costs more than my car. And, and I'm, I'm a pastor, so I'm sitting here in my mind, like, how in the world am I going to fix this? Like, how am I going to fix this big old problem? Uh, and the owner of the house says, you know what? Don't worry about it. We were going to change those screens anyway. And I said, likely story. <laughs> uh, if it doesn't get, if, if we stop there, that, that's great. But it gets worse, at least for my pride. Uh, the next week we were at church and, you know, I used to preach from a, a little iPad and I, you know, was talking about how, you know, I'm blind at my young age and I, this little iPad just wasn't doing it for me. And, uh, uh, next week he comes back to church and he brings this massive box and he gives me this box and I open it and it's the biggest iPad I've ever seen in my life. And he says, you can have this. And I'm like, I broke your screen and I'm taking your, your iPad, like, uh, and what it did for me is it showed me just a massive amount of grace that was extended to me in that moment where, you know, I didn't deserve an iPad, right? I, I deserved to pay him back for his really expensive screen that I ran through. But he extended so much mercy and grace to me by not only making me pay for what I needed to pay for, what, what was deservedly mine to pay for, he also extended to me an abundant amount of grace by also meeting my needs, meeting me where I was. He saw something that I needed, and he extended it and gave it to me as a free gift. And I say that because we are, we are here at a great time of year. I love the Christmas season because the Christmas season is so important because it reminds us the grace that we all have to have extended to us because of our inability to meet our own needs. See, the need that we have to be right before a holy God is a need only God himself could meet and as much as we can try, as much as we can work, 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 we just find ourselves face first in screens that we can't fix. And what we need to understand about the Christmas season is this season, as much as it's commercialized, as much as, as pe people take it all out of context, we have to, as Christians, as the church, we have to zoom back in and get our focus on what this season is really, really about. Because, because as Christians, we ought to give exuberant thanksgiving to God this Christmas. And the reason that we're going to give God exuberant thanksgiving this Christmas is because we know that He has extended to us His unmerited favor. That's, a, that's, a, that's what grace means. Grace is an unmerited favor that you and I have received from God. And that's what we need to be doing this Christmas. 
And the reason why we got to do it this Christmas is because we understand that God has extended us his unmerited favor all while holding ample evidence of us disobeying his word and his commands. And that is the beautiful part about unmerited grace is we don't get what we deserve. We get what we don't deserve. Grace and mercy and compassion. And so what we're going to do for this morning, for this Christmas season, is we're going to jump into Matthew 1. And if you could open your Bible to Matthew 1, we're going to go through it. And you might see a whole bunch of names, but what I see is a whole bunch of God's grace being poured out on humankind. What I see is a whole bunch of names that God has in His divine providence weaved and dripped grace all throughout the life of the Davidic line to bring us the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now, we have to understand exactly what this Christmas is about because if we're going to forget, if we forget right, just how guilty we are of breaking God's law, I mean, and that's what Christmas is about, you realize, right? Christmas means nothing for people who, have, who don't believe that God's law has been broken. Christmas means nothing to people who don't believe in a moral objectivity to the laws of God. Christmas can only mean what it truly means to those of us who understand that we can't be right before a holy God. For those of us who believe that it is only through Christ that we can be brought back into proper relationship with God. And so forgetting that, forgetting that we're guilty of breaking God's law will cause us to hurry through Christmas. Forgetting just how much we need to slow down and recognize God's gracious intervention in our own lives. And that's why this family tree means so much to us as Christians, because what we get to do when you can't pronounce these names, you have to slow down. And when you slow down, you realize these were real people. These were people whom God was intervening for. And we can slow down and look at some of these names. We can realize just how obvious God's intervention was in the lives of the people of Israel and in you and me. You see, through the sinfulness of humanity, God weaved his grace into the fabric of humanity, and it happened through the genealogy of Christ. And we're going to start in one place. Last week we talked about the covenant, some really important covenants that you and I needed to know in order to understand why Christmas had to happen. And we're going to learn about one more covenant this morning that's going to tie all this up real neat for you and I to understand why Christ had to come. And it's called the Mosaic Covenant. And what the Mosaic Covenant was, it was God's moral law that was instituted during the life of Nation, the leader of the tribe of Judas. Y'all remember that name there in the genealogy, right? We see it there. Look at verse 4. So we have Aminadab, the father of Nation, and the father of Salmon. Well, there's something that we need to know about Nation. Because we understand the Mosaic Law came through Moses, not Nation. But what we need to understand when we read this genealogy is this was an historical account. I mean, when Moses was, took them through uh, the Red Sea, took them through the wilderness, you know who was there? The line of David. You know who was there? The line of Jesus Christ. So we got to understand that Christ's plan for Jesus was always there, was always evident. And what we see here is during the Mosaic Law, we already have the line of Christ already present, already working, and he is the leader of the tribe of Judah, nation, and he was there when this was spoken. I want you to flip over to Exodus 20. Exodus 20, Genesis, Exodus, two books in, chapter 20, verse 1. You see, we got to understand something about Christmas, because we understand that Christmas is about God fulfilling His promises. We understand that Christmas was about you and I unable to fulfill the promise, unable to live 
holy in the presence of God. And we're going to look at this law that God had instituted during the life of nation and to see, hey, how do we stack up against this? How did the line of David stack up against the holiness in which we were supposed to live as people of the Lord? Look at verse 1 and verse 20, or chapter 20. So we have here, we have Moses at Mount Sinai, and he says this, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And here's the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself carved images or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to any of them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Look at verse 6. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Here's a main tenet of the Mosaic Covenant. We see it wrapped up in the Old Testament in this way. The covenants in the Old Testament were put this way, called blessings and curses. And God says this, if you will follow my commands, if you will obey me, if you will love me and follow what I have to say, look look what's going to happen. I'm going to show you steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. That's the promise of God for those who keep his commands, who keep his covenant. We also saw the curses. What happens when the people did not follow God? We have here that I'm going to visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Do we see the problem of sin? Do we see what happens when people blatantly turn their backs on God and walk in rebellion? God says, I'm not going to forget the sin. I'm not going to forget it. I'm going to visit it to your first and second and third and fourth generations of your children. I mean, this was the tenets of the the old covenant. We realize that. I think it's important for us to understand the Mosaic covenant because we got to understand how bad sin really is. And so many of us that live here in the age of the New Covenant, in the age of the church, sometimes we look at the Old Testament and the New Testament and say, these are two different gods. These aren't two different gods. The same God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. And the God who hates sin in the Old Testament hates sin in the New Testament. And what this does, what the law of Moses does here, is it shows us, man, that's bad. If God really, really hates sin that much that he's going to visit sin to generations and generations and generations, I should probably pay a little closer attention So let's look at it. It keeps going in verse 7. Here's another commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is with you in your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven, the earth, and the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Verse 12, you need to honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land, and that your Lord your God is giving you. Verse 13, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is in your neighbor's house. You see, what we have here is a list of laws that God had laid out for Israel. 
And these don't seem like they have a lot of wiggle room, do they? Not a lot of wiggle room here. God said, you don't do this. Here's, here's the law, and here's what you need to do. And so for you and for me, paramount to celebrating Christmas is to point number one on your outline. Write this down. You need to recognize that God has an objective moral law. I know I'm catching your attention because you're like, how are you going to do this? We're going to do it. All right, we're going to do it right here. All right, you need to recognize that God has an objective moral law. You see, the old covenant or the Mosaic covenant, what we call it, establishes the means of man's communion with God. Do you realize that? God says, if you want to be with me, right? if you want to be around me, if you want to be in the presence of the Holy One of Israel, the God of the universe, this is the life that you have to live. There is no ands, there is no ifs, there is no buts. You want to be in communion with me, this is how you have to live. And this is what he was saying to Israel. Because of God's holiness, this is how you're going to be in, in communion with me. Right? Since his holiness is unchanging, right? we believe that the same holy God of the Old Covenant is the same holy God of the New Covenant, don't we? Right? We believe that. Then we understand if God's holiness doesn't change, his law doesn't change. Right? We still have the same laws, the moral laws that God had given are the still the same moral laws that, that we have in society today. Now, you say, what do you mean? Aren't we under the New Covenant? Well, okay, fine. What I want to do is I want to prove to you that God's law isn't changing. I want you to flip to Matthew. We're already there uh, in chapter 1, so just flip a couple of pages to Matthew 5. We've got to understand just how important this law is. So without the law, there is no sin. We understand that, right? I mean, your kids, how, can, how in the world would they know what's wrong if you never told them what's wrong? And God's law tells us about sin. And this is why we don't abolish the law, and this is what Jesus has to say about that one thing. Chapter 5, verse 17. He says this. This is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. Well, there's the news, right? Jesus said, I didn't come to get rid of them. I'm not here to get rid of the old covenant. I'm not here to get rid of it. He says this. Or the prophets. He says, I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You see that? They didn't go away. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, those grammar in Greek, iota and dots, they're the little bitty things in grammar. Uh, we don't even have it in English grammar, but you need to know that he points out the two smallest parts of the grammar system, when you, which you can see in Marks. He says the smallest mark of the law, not, not even a, a prick of the law, is going to disappear. And this is what he says. Until heaven and earth passes away, not even the smallest part of the law is going to pass away until it's all accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So we still see even in, in Christ's life, he just puts the importance on the law and how the law is important to guide in holiness, in communion with God. It's important. Because it means a couple of things. Right? And we're not, this isn't the whole picture, but this is the picture that we have to lay for a good foundation of what it means to be a Christian and what it means to celebrate Christmas. And I say this because point number one is recognizing that God has an, an objective moral law because we live in a culture who wants to balk at objective morality. Right? And we can't celebrate Christmas if there is no objective morality because if there's no objective morality, there's no need for a Savior because you can't say that what I'm doing is sin and I can't say what you're doing is sin. And if there is no sin, there is no law, there is no need for a Savior. Did we connect those dots there? And so I, I, this is going to be the best Christmas message ever, all right? Because we have to know something that in this kind of culture that we live in, we have to stand firm in a cultural battle 
against objective morality. Right? I'm not saying you need to go stand on a soapbox and scream at people about all the sin in the world, but what I am saying is you have to stand firm and say, you know, there is such thing as objective morality, and if you don't believe it, open it up to Exodus 20. If you don't believe it, open up to the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus goes and reiterates the Ten Commandments and says, listen, I'm doubling down on these. Jesus didn't come to say, now forget those, I'm giving you new ones. The Sermon on the Mount doubles down on the same commandments that we'd see in Exodus 20. And so what we have to understand is there is objective morality, and for you and I as Christians, we have to stand firm on that. Because if there is no objective morality, there is no need for Christmas. But here's what I do want to do, because a lot of people are like, yeah, objective morality, and you're getting your soapbox ready, you already built it, it's in your garage, and you're about to go stand on it, all right? Here's, here's, this is for you, right? The only comparison game you need to be playing is you versus God's moral law, right? That's also the truth of God's moral law, is it's not you taking a mirror around showing everybody else, which by all means, do grace and mercy and truth, do all those things, especially in God's church, you need to be showing people, uh, if they're not living up to God's moral law, we need to be talking about that in the church, and we need to be talking about that in the lives of one another, uh, and sharing the gospel. Of course, do all those things. But as scripture teaches, I can't go and try to Get the speck out of your eye when I have a log in my own eye, right? And so what we have to do is when I'm looking at comparing things, I'm not comparing my morality to somebody else's morality. I'm comparing my morality to God's moral law. And so when I pick up that mirror, I need to look at myself and say, man, I really missed the mark. Like I really failed at even keeping these Ten Commandments here. And so for you and for me, what we're going to do in Christmas is we got to take a real good look at ourselves in the mirror and realize there is an objective moral law. It's not subjective. It didn't change over the years. It's the same moral law that God has instituted in Exodus. You see, God's moral law for Israel was codified during the life of nation. Remember, we're talking about the line of David here, and we've got to understand the line of David was there when the law was given. That's very important for us if we want to understand Christmas. When the law was given, Christ's line was present. He was there. He heard it. He saw it, okay? And it was codified during his life, and it's called the Ten Commandments, all right? And we have to understand, during nation's line, beginning with King David, was responsible for leading Israel to uphold God's moral law. Did you get that? Nation was there, he was accountable to the law, and it was through nation that we then have King David. Not nation, like a nation, his name was Nashon, okay, Nashon. And he had, generations later, King David. And it was the king's job to do what? To lead in what we call in doctrine and theology a theocratic monarchy, which means this, that God had given a law and he said, all right, kings, it's your job to take the law that I have given you and you need to go administrate it to to the nation of Israel. And so it was the king's law to uphold the law in his own life and to also administer it to the kingdom of Israel. And that's so important because of what we're about to see is King David and his line all the way to Christ, mind you, was responsible in instituting and upholding God's moral law. Now I want to show you something. Because the Old Testament sends a clear picture that David, nor Solomon, nor Rehoboam, nor Hezekiah, nor any of the kings were able to be blameless before God. I want to give you two examples. Uh, The first one's found in Matthew 1.6. If you look at Matthew 1.6, we see here... uh, Verse 5, verse 6, and Jesse, the father of David, the king, and David was the father of Solomon. So we already see King David coming into the line here. And a lot of us, I bring up King David because honestly what I want to do is I just want to wreck your picture of who King David was, right? 
I want to really mess up your world when you think about King David. Because when you think about King David, you think about what? He's a man after God's own heart. You know, he was the king and he was the, everyone loves King David. I don't like King David. Right? King David, not a great man. Right? You don't have to flip there, but go to uh, 1 Samuel 13, 14, if you jot that down. That's where it says that he was a man after God's own heart. But if you just go over to the next book, 2 Samuel 11, you're also going to see how David was an adulterer, right? how he was a murderer, right? how he was a deceiver. He couldn't run his family. I mean, the man could not, the good, the man couldn't battle himself out of a paper sack. And that's what we got to see here. Because one of the problems that we're going to have as Christians is by elevating man in the Old Testament when all of those failures of man were designed to point us to Jesus. And so we never can look at King David like he was all that. Of course, he was a man after God's own heart. Much like me, I see myself a lot more like David, right? Man, I really love you, Lord, but I'm really falling all the time. Like, I really want to go after you, but I'm really, really got a lot of problems, okay? And I find myself in Psalm 51 more than I do anywhere else. Thank God, just forgive me. I have sinned against you, right? We should see a lot of ourselves in King David. But what we should never see in King David is this moral, upstanding king who has been leading his people in righteousness because he has this moral law that he has to administer to the nation, and he can't even keep his own moral law. Right? The moral law that God had given was this. You shall not murder. What did King David do? He murdered. You shall not commit adultery. He committed adultery. You shall not steal. He stole a, a man's wife, right? I mean, come, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. He lied. He lied, and he got a guy killed for it, right? And, and, and you shall not covet. He coveted his neighbor's wife. Do you see this? I, I want to point out here that David broke almost every single commandment that we see in the law of Moses. All right, so we can understand that David, he, this is not the guy that was leading Israel to any kind of righteousness, was he? Okay, great. And I'm glad I just broke your picture of David, and I like to do that. But now I want to go to somebody else, okay? And this person, we all don't like him, right? We all don't like Manasseh. You can see he's in verse 10 of Matthew 1. But what we can understand about Manasseh, and you can read most of this in 2 Chronicles 33, 5 through 7. I won't read all of it, but you can jot that down to go back and, and read just how bad of a king Manasseh was. Now, Manasseh, again, the line of David, right? He was one of the kings over Israel uh, after the split of the kingdoms, which we'll talk about that later. Uh, but we need to understand something about Manasseh. He was bad, right? Even though we look at David as a good king, and in so many ways he was, did a lot of good things, Manasseh, there is nothing redeemable we can say about Manasseh, right? He built, uh, he built idols. He built altars to other gods and led people to worship other gods who wasn't the Lord our God, right? He sacrificed his own sons to other gods, killed them, murdered his own children, and, and false idol worship. I mean, this guy was just terrible. And it says that he actually was so bad, he just provoked God to anger. You ever done that? You ever been, you've been so bad, you just provoked God to anger? Well, that's the life that Manasseh lived. And so what I want us to see is like, okay, we all agree that Manasseh was bad. Some of us can debate whether or not David was great or bad. But here's what we all have to do. And it's point number two, is you need to accept your moral culpability before God. Okay, because what we see... In David's life, and we see in Manasseh's life, is two guys who completely missed the mark, right? And you can even go to King Josiah. And King Josiah was the best king, is what they say, and he still had problems. He still missed the mark. If he didn't miss the mark, we didn't need Jesus, because Josiah could have done it. Josiah couldn't do it, because he also missed the mark. And for us, what we have to do is accept our moral culpability before God. That is, that we have a responsibility to say, you know what? I sinned. 
I have to accept my sin. I have to confirm and affirm that I am a sinful person. And here's the good news. You know, Manasseh and David both repented. Can you believe that? We have, a, we have a great king who's after God's own heart over here in David. And we have this terrible king over here. His name is Manasseh, and he's not redeemable. No one could save Manasseh. Manasseh is terrible. Do you know in Scripture both of these men repent from their sins? You know why? Because they understood their, their moral culpability before God. They understood that before God, they were responsible for their sin. And they had to answer for their sin. You see, it's our inability to sustain a relationship with God that requires Christ to be born, right? Christmas is here because we all have moral culpability before God. And somebody had to fulfill God's perfect moral law. And if the kings couldn't do it, who could do it? Because the kings were the ones responsible to lead Israel into righteousness, and they couldn't do it. But we understood last week that the Davidic covenant said there has to be a king on the throne forever who can sustain this kind of theocratic monarchy that it is necessary to lead people in righteousness. Did you follow that? This had to happen, but it wasn't them. It wasn't David. It wasn't Manasseh. Right? Christmas is about restoring our broken relationship with God. Right? And we see both David and Manasseh taking full responsibility for their sin. There's two, two verses. Jot them down. We won't flip to them. Uh, the first is Second Chronicles thirty three eleven through thirteen. Second Chronicles thirty three, eleven through thirteen. I'll read it to you. You don't have to flip there unless you want to. This is so good for us to understand how bad Manasseh was, and still how much he understood his moral culpability in the presence of a holy God. It says in verse seven of chapter thirty three. Therefore, the Lord brought upon the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze, and brought him to Babylon. Verse 12, And when he, Manasseh, was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God, and humbled himself greatly before the God of his father. Did you hear that? In his sin, he realized how culpable he was, and responsible for his sin that he was, that he humbled himself greatly before God. In verse 13, and he prayed to them. And this is what I want you to pay attention to. This is the most Merry Christmas greeting you could ever have in your life. Listen to this. Verse 13, and he prayed to them, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Did you hear that? The graciousness of God that if we would just be the ones who say, you know what, I'm a sinner, right? I sin. I am separated from a holy God. I mean, if anyone could see that picture clearly, it was Manasseh, right? Manasseh looked in the mirror of the law and he said, I am sinful. I am dirty. I am unclean. And as he's being drugged off from his kingdom into exile, he, we look and he says, and he prayed to God and God was moved. You wouldn't be. If someone did that much sin to you, you wouldn't be moved with pity and moved with forgiveness. You'd be like, drag them off, get away, right? But that's the grace and the mercy of our Lord that when we pray to Him, He is moved and He hears us and He forgives us, right? And that's the worst of these, right? This is Manasseh who led thousands and thousands of people into sin. Let's look at another one, Psalm 51. Jot that down, Psalm 51. We saw Manasseh repenting and accepting his moral culpability before God. But let's look at King David. This is how King David responded to his sin. Psalm 51 says this in verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. 
Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Did you hear that? He says, before I even come in the room, my sin's in front of me. He says, I have so much sin that it beats me to you. Right? I mean, this is the kind of culpability that David understood in his life saying, I mean, I, I'm the most sinful. Like, I can't even get into your presence without sin just falling out and falling before you. It's always there in front of you. Verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. And we understood that David didn't just sin against God, right? David sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah and against Israel. But we understand the seriousness in which David sinned. David said, listen, I understand my moral culpability before you, and that is such a way that I understand that you're the main one that I sinned against. Because if the law didn't exist, it wouldn't have told me that these things were sinful and wrong. And because you made the law and I broke your law, I sinned against you. Do you hear that? And it's important for us to understand that when we break God's law, we have sinned against God. Right? So many of us like, oh yeah, you know, I, you know, I took the, uh, the name of the Lord in vain the other day. Well, I shouldn't have done that. No, understand that you broke God's law and you sinned against God. Right? Right? Thou shalt not commit adultery. Right? Thou shalt not bear false witness. You shouldn't be lying. Right? You shouldn't be coveting other things other people have. And we're so quick to say, oh, I shouldn't do that. I don't want to hurt their feeling. I don't want to hurt their feeling. These, these laws exist to show you that you sin against God. And that is what David understood about his sin, is he didn't go straight to the, the worldly aspects of his sin. He went straight to the divine aspect and problem of sin, and it was against God that he sinned. And that's what we have to do in our lives, is understand that anything you do that is sinful and is against God's law, you broke his law. You didn't break my law. You didn't break your neighbor's law. You broke God's law. And we have to understand that we have a moral culpability before God, and we have to accept it. Right? You may not like it. You may not love it. I sit, and I sit around all the time thinking how much I wish I didn't have to be morally culpable before God. But I have to be, and you have to be. It's one of those things like taxes. You don't get a choice. You just do them. And when you don't do them, you get in trouble. Okay? Same thing. All right? We have God's moral law. You don't have to like it, but it's there, and it's the truth. Okay? And we have to do something with it. And I entreat you to accept your moral culpability before God. Two things you can do. Three things. You don't have to do one, two, three. There's just the three things you can do as practical application. One, you need to confess your sin to God. I know many of you showed up this morning to watch these kiddos sing, and I'm glad you did, but you also need to confess your sin to God. You need to, in your own life, look and say and realize that you have broke God's law. And if you broke His law, you owe Him a response. And that proper response to you and I is confess and repent. Now, two, you need to confess your sin to those who you've wronged. You know, this is the wonderful part about the vertical and the horizontal uh, relationship requirements that we have as Christians, right? And this is what uh, even Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, listen, if you have a, a gift laying at the altar and you realize that somebody has something wrong, wrong against you, you need to leave that gift at the altar. You need to go and you need to make things right with them. And once you have reconciled that relationship, then come back to me and offer your gift. Now, did God say, I don't want your gifts? Did God say, I don't want your worship? He didn't say that. He says, there is a way in which you worship me properly, and the way that you're going to worship me properly is by go making reconciliation with people that you have sinned against, and then once you have done that, you realize what worship truly means, and it means being holy before me, and being holy for me means you need to go repent and make things right in your relationships with others, and then you can come back to me, bow down at the altar, and give your gifts and worship and praise to me. Right? 
And that's what we need to understand when we're going to accept our moral culpability before God. We have to confess our sin to the people we've wronged. Even if it's your spouse who you don't even want to talk to this morning. Like you need to take and understand your moral culpability before your spouse, and you need to apologize. I mean, it's holiday season. Every one of us are thinking about that person in our family that we've wronged, and we've got to go see them in a couple weeks. And we need to take the time and figure out how we're going to go be reconciled to our family and our friends during Christmas, because Christmas is all about reconciliation. Now, I don't want you to take that and say, what's about me reconciling my life with other people? No, first and foremost, it's about you reconciling your relationship with God. Because until you reconcile your relationship with God, you're going to have zero reconciliation with anybody. Because it's God's law that teaches us how to reconcile ourselves with others. We need to understand that we have a moral culpability, and we need to ask God for forgiveness, and we need to confess and ask forgiveness for those who we have wronged. And finally, it's this. Because once I said all that, some of you in here said, not me, I haven't done anything wrong, all right? That's because you probably do this. You project your blame on other people. And the one thing you can't be doing if you're going to accept moral culpability in your sin is you can't project blame on someone else. Like, and you're like, oh, what does that even mean? Well, you know what it means. You've read Genesis 3. Right? In Genesis 3, we have uh, Eve who ate the fruit, right? and uh, God comes uh, to Adam and Eve, and God says, what happened here? Did you eat the fruit that I told you not to eat? And you know what Adam does? It was a woman whom you gave me. Because we understand Adam ate some of that too, right? Gave the fruit to Adam and he ate. And God says, what did you do? And he's like, it's the woman you gave me. And she made me do it. And you know what the woman does? It was the serpent who made me do it. What did they do? They could not accept their moral culpability before God. Right? They were putting the blame on someone else. Like They were projecting the faults to a different place so they did not have to come face to face with their own sin. And how many times do we do that in our own lives, in our marriages, in our relationships with others, our jobs at work? How many times do we kind of shift the blame because we know we can kind of manipulate into people into believing our truth and not believing what really, really happened? We all do this. You do this even in the most subtle ways. And when you do that, you are neglecting your responsibility to take moral culpability in your life. And what God wants you to do, what holiness to God looks like, is when you mess up, you fess up. Right? When you mess up, you don't try to manipulate it somewhere else. You say, you know what? I did wrong. I'm not going to project my blame on someone else. I'm not going to make you think you made me do it. I did it. I'm responsible for my sin. But any healthy Christian is going to understand this because you couldn't even be a Christian if you never accepted moral culpability. And so if you're in here this morning and you're thinking, I'm a Christian, but I've never in my life even understood what accepting moral culpability was, I want to challenge you to say, maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you're a cultural Christian, or maybe you, you just say, oh, I believed all the right things about God. Well, great. You believe all the right things about God. You believe this to be true. Only people who accept their moral culpability before a holy God can be right with God, because I first have to understand that I'm not right before God, and there, I have to be right before God, and the only way that I do that is by repenting of my sins and trusting in Christ. We follow in there? All right. That's how we become a Christian, which means... Becoming a Christian and being a Christian is all about moral culpability. It's all about my moral responsibility to repent of my sins and trust in Christ. <clears throat> and, and this is, and yeah, I love this part. All right, we're about to get in some good news here. But the good news is wrapped in bad news, okay? Uh, and it's this, like, you don't want to confess your sin because you know it's going to bring you into a low spot in your life, right? You don't want to deal with these bad things because you believe it's going to take you somewhere in life you don't want to go. And I'm saying that's okay, because I want you to look at Matthew 1.11. Look at Matthew 1.11. 
Okay, we're going to see something here, and it's really important when it comes to the Christmas story. It's really important when it comes to the reason Christ had come and the way that we must live in our lives now, knowing that Christ has come and he's going to come back again. There's a way that we have to live. Matthew 1.11, it says this, And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. So we see historically what had happened here in this part of the line of David, the line of Christ, is Judah was deported to Babylon. Right? You read this in the prophets. Uh, Daniel, the book of Daniel, that's all, in, that's all in the nation of Babylon under the king of Nebuchadnezzar. And there's something we need to understand about living holy to the Lord, right? is everything doesn't have to be going your way to live life God's way. Right? And that happens a lot when we confess our sin. Right? Not everything's going the right way, and it's going to stink because people aren't going to look at you the same. They're going to look at you and think, wow, this is a sinner. Yes, that's how everyone should look at each other. We're all sinners. Okay? And you're, you're, what you project yourself to be may not be who you really are. And when you confess your sin, it brings you down here, and you're going to be living life in a little different light. But that's okay because everything doesn't have to be going your way to live life God's way. And I want, to, I want to share that with you, and we're going to find it historically in 2 Kings 24, or prophetically, and you don't have to flip there, uh, but you can write these down at least. You're going to find it historically in 2 Kings 24. You're going to find it prophetically in Jeremiah 29. Right? And what we're going to see is that Christmas is about hope shining out of darkness. Right? And we're going to see that God expects His people to follow Him even when life is hard. Because this is what I love. I want, to, I want to show you historically what is going on right now. And I just kind of gave it to you a little bit. A Jeconiah in Judah, right at this point in time, after Solomon, after Rehoboam, we understand that Israel split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Right? And we understand that the northern kingdom was taken out a long time ago in 700 B.C. And now we're uh, at the southern kingdom who gets taken into captivity in 587 B.C. Okay, so we see the northern kingdom completely gone. All we have left when they say Israel, they're saying Judah. So Judah is the only thing left. And what we see in 2 Kings 24 is the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar captures Judah in 587. So this is the historical picture. But I want to paint you what's going on in the lives of the people. And you can find that in Jeremiah 29. That's some place you can turn. Jeremiah 29. I want us to see that everything doesn't have to be going our way to live life God's way. Jeremiah 29. Some of you think I'm going to go right to Jeremiah 29.11, but I'm not. Because I want you to know why Jeremiah 29.11 is there. And if you want to know why Jeremiah 29.11 is there, you've got to go before Jeremiah 29.11. So we're going to start in verse 4. In verse 4, it says this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, listen to this, to the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Who sent them into exile? Was it King Nebuchadnezzar? No, God said it was me. And this is, this is what I want you to understand. When we sin against God, we get disciplined by God. And that, listen, and that's great. Because if you're a dad in here, if you're a mom in here, you understand discipline is necessary for your children. Do you love them any less? It actually shows that you love them more than a lot of parents who you would deal, will discipline. So we've got to understand that when God disciplines his people, it doesn't mean that he hates them, right? It means, hey, you broke the law, and there's a consequence for breaking the law. So I want, I want you to see what happens here. This is, this is a beautiful story of redemption and God's mercy and grace. Look, I have sent you in exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And here's what he says, verse 5. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to build houses. I want you to live in them. 
I want you to plant gardens, and I want you to eat their produce. I want you to take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For this says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Do you see this? He sends them into exile, and you know what he says? Listen to me. Like, you need to go there and just listen to me. Just obey me. Live life like I've asked you to live. Go into exile. I know you don't like it. It's gonna, there's a lot of bad things going to happen. There's a lot of things that you don't like about going off into another place, being taken over by another country. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to live life just like you would if you were in Jerusalem. Right? And that is so important for us. It's like so many times when we feel like we're not in a close relationship with God, when we've just missed the mark so bad and we're living in sin, we just say, okay, forget it. I'm not even, I don't even want to try anymore. Or I can't do this. It's too hard. And all I'm saying is what God wants us to do when, he, when we are culpable for our sin and we repent and we, we turn away from our sin, go live life. Go continue living in righteousness. Like No matter if you've been exiled to another place, just live life. Obey God and just listen to Him. And that's what God says to Israel here is just listen. You've sinned. You're being disciplined. In your discipline, go live in righteousness. And so many of us need to hear that this Christmas season because some of you are in a place in your life where you're like, man, this is the worst place I've ever been. Right? I'm in a depressed place. I'm so anxious in my life. My marriage has never been worse. So all these bad things are going on in your life. And what I'm telling you to do, not me, what God's going to tell you to do in his word is just say this, go live in righteousness. Go do what God has called you to do in whatever situation you find yourself in. Because there's hope for us, and it's the hope of Christmas, and we're going to get there. But I want you to keep reading with me, all right? Here's what he says to do, and here's what he says don't do, right? Do not let your, in the second half of verse 8, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that you dream. That's good for us, a lot of us in here. Like, don't be just listening to all these other people out there that say these things that make you feel good, and your itching ears make you want to hear this thing and this thing, and you know, like when people teach you, the only good things should happen to you this time of year. Like, I mean, if, if good things aren't happening to you, you're not doing the right things. And it's like, listen, don't listen to these people. Like, some of you have dreams, and like some of you dream. I had a dream the other night, and I, you know, I believe this is going to happen. Don't believe that. Because like, I'm going to tell you something about my life. If half of my dreams happened, I don't know. I'd be in the middle of space right now, floating around. Okay, like I don't don't look at your dreams as the as as the answer to your problems. Look to God's word for the answers to your problems. And this is what He's saying to Israel, verse nine. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, I love this. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I'm going to visit you. He's saying, listen, I I got this planned out. I got this planned down to the day, the year, the minute, and the second to when I'm going to come and I'm going to put an end to this, okay? And he says, I'm going to visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Do you hear this? When you read Jeremiah 29, 11, you're like, ask me, God, one day you're going to give me all these things? And God says, yeah, as you're living for me in whatever situation that you're in, there is hope and there is a promise and there is abundance that God is going to bring into our lives but it's not right here, and it's not right now. Because I want, to, I want you to write down number three, and it's this. You need to anticipate the second coming of Christ. Right? Anticipate the second coming of Christ. 
Right, we celebrate Christmas, and we call it, uh, we celebrate Advent. And if you're like me, you're like, what does even Advent mean? I didn't grow up in, you know, Sunday school church. I'm like, Advent? What does that mean? It just means coming, like the coming of Christ. And that's what we celebrate during Advent is the coming of Christ, okay? But here's the great news. Like, we're not looking for the first advent. We're looking for the second advent of Christ. And just like Christ, or just like God promised that Christ would come in the first advent, all over the New Testament, more than almost any theme in the entire New Testament, you know what it's talked about in the New Testament more than anything? The second advent of Christ. Like, you cannot get out of one letter in the New Testament without hearing that Christ is coming back. And so for you and me, it's like, hey, we're living here in this time in our lives where things aren't going very well. Life could be better. I can't get over my sickness. My relationships are tormented. I have all these problems. And what I'm saying is if you want the hope, right, the future that God has called you to, the plans that he has for you to, for welfare and not for evil, for a future and a hope, you know what that's called? It's called eternity. It's called being in right relationship with him so he can bring you with him to eternity. That's the hope that we can anticipate at the second coming of Christ. And that's why, like Israel, has to look forward to this promise that God had just made to them. Listen, in 70 years, in 70 years, look at me, everybody, in 70 years, I'm going to come back and I'm going to fulfill my promise. Let me tell you something about your life. Most of you aren't going to be here in 70 years. So I can even look at you and say, hey, 20 years, hey, 10 years, hey, one year, three weeks, Three weeks, some of you in here. I had a friend that died the other day in a car wreck, right? 29 years old. Could have told him that morning, in 30 minutes, God is going to fulfill the promise of bringing you into his presence. And really what's going to happen is you're going to have to have been reconciled to God or God's going to reconcile you to his judgment, right? You see what I'm saying here? We don't have 70 years. None of us in here have 70 years left. And then God's going to fulfill his promise. So for so many of us who are looking here at the exile and saying, yeah, 70 years, and then God gave them the promises, brought them back into Israel, and he did. We're going to see that next week. God fulfilled his promise. He took them back out of exile and put them back in Jerusalem. And guess what? In less than seven years, all of us are going to see God's promise fulfilled in us being brought into relationship with him for eternity. You realize that. But we have a responsibility that God has asked us to live here. And I want to flip you to it. First Peter, last scripture, First Peter. Right, you, gotta, you have to anticipate the second coming. And what I mean by that is you need to be excited for it. You need to be looking forward to it. I mean, just like Israel saying, hey, we're going to be in Babylon for 70 years. And I guarantee you when year 60 hit, they were like 10 years. Like, 10 years, and, I, and I'm out of here. Nebuchadnezzar, I'm out, right? Two years, and then, you know, 68 years came. And they're like, two years. I mean, you have kids, and you're telling them, hey, God made us this promise 68 years ago, and you weren't even around. But I want to share with you the promise that God had made, because in two years, we're out of here. Right? This is what was going on in Jeremiah, you realize. Okay? But I want to tell you the promise God's made with us, and you find it in 1 Peter 1, verse 13. So what he says in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Here's what you need to do. Prepare for action, be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you see that? at the revealing of Christ, that is at his second coming. That's where your hope needs to be set on. You need to set your hope on the second coming. That promise that in less than 70 years, you're going to be brought into uh, reality and, and you're going to be brought into relationship with Christ because you're going to see him. You're going to be in the presence of God. All right. Verse 14, here's how we live because of that. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Did you see how we got all the way back to the law? 
Did you see how we started with the law? We got all the way back around to redemption in Christ, and there's still this requirement that we live holy lives? Like so many people want to say the law only was important until Christ came, and now it doesn't matter anymore. No, it matters so much more because we have this Redeemer in Christ who has called us into Him, and He has lived this perfect life. He has redeemed us, and in this redeemed life, we're going to miss the mark. We're going to be wrong. We're not always going to be perfect, but He's saying you still have this requirement to live a holy life. And this is what He says. And you realize First Peter is after the resurrection of Christ. I mean, this is after the new, the new covenant was fulfilled, all those good things. And this is still the requirement that we're holy as He is holy. Verse 16, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Verse 17, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, listen to this, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. Did you hear that? Conduct yourself with fear in the time of your exile. See, we're all living in an imperfect society, in an imperfect time where, where things aren't always going right political, geopolitical turmoil. We have, uh, I mean, you saw 100 tornadoes just hit the Midwest the other day and tons of people died. We all are living in a time in in our history where life ain't great, life ain't perfect. There's so many things that are problematic. And what God wants you to do is you need to conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. As you're sitting here in New Braunfels, Texas in 2021 during Christmas, you need to say, man, I've got to change a little bit of the way I'm living so I can look forward to anticipate this promise that's going to be fulfilled when I die and I'm brought into relationship with God. I shouldn't say brought into relationship. It's not even the best way to say it. When I'm brought into the presence of God. When I'm brought into the presence of God, right now I need to conduct myself with fear throughout the time of your exile. And here's why. Verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways you inherited from your forefathers, right? Just like in the Old Testament, the law came, and then the judges came, right? And then the kings came, and they were all trying to run away from the sin of their forefathers. The good news for us in verse 18 is we already, we've been rescued from the sin of our forefathers. Not with perishable things, such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And here's your Christmas verse for the morning. Verse 20. He was foreknown before the foundations of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. This verse is for all of us who thinks that Christmas is just one of those things that I just get to celebrate the, the birth of a baby. No, like he was made manifest, which means he was born for your sake. Like Christ came for your sake. He came for your sin. He came to redeem you from lawlessness and sin, and he came to create a redeemed people, a people for his own possession. Right, and this, is, and this is exactly what I said, verse 21. Who through him are believers in God. You know why we're believers in God? Because of Christ. There is no believers in God outside of Christ. Who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So we talked about setting your, your hope fully on the grace that's going to be brought to you at the revelation of Christ. At the end in verse 21, it says, you need to believe in God who raised Christ from the dead so that your faith and hope are in God. It was important for you guys to see if we're going to anticipate the second coming of Christ, we need to understand that it's a real thing. Right? And I think so many of us, we just put it so far off into the, our purview that we don't, we don't care. Like, we don't even think on a regular basis about the second coming of Christ. And it reminded me of when I was a kid, my dad worked, uh, my dad worked until late. And so uh, throughout the day, 
I would kind of be a hoodlum and do whatever I wanted in, in the house, okay? Uh, and I look at the clock, and I'm like, it's 12 o'clock. I mean, my dad ain't going to be home for another nine hours, you know? And I'm like, so I'm just kind of doing my own thing, and slowly but surely I'll look up and realize, oh, my dad's going to be here in five hours. So my, my attitude starts changing just a little, you know? Not enough where my mom really notices, but enough where I'm like, I'm not going to get in too much trouble if dad shows up because I'm going to chill a little bit. And I look at the clock later after being, you know, my continually hoodlum self, I look up at the clock and realize dad's going to be home in 60 minutes. And if mom's mad at me in 60 minutes, guess what's going to happen? I'm going to get in trouble, okay? I have, but in this, you realize I have this really, really great opportunity to look at a clock and realize I knew exactly when my dad was coming home. And so I knew how to conform my attitude so I wouldn't get in too much trouble by the time my dad walked through the door. All right, I had this great luxury that we don't have when it comes to God, okay? You don't know when you're going to die, and you don't know when Christ is coming back. However, we still have this requirement to live holy lives, to conduct ourselves with fear throughout the time of our exiles, and looking forward to the hope that's going to be revealed to us at the coming of Christ. And I'm going to tell you, if your life is sinful, right, if you're living in sin right now, you're not looking, uh, you're not anticipating the second coming of Christ. You're actually like, I just hope you wait a little bit longer because I got to clean this mess up because I don't want my hand in the cookie jar when you come back, right? None of us want to be living in sin or doing anything sinful when Christ comes back. None of us. And that's why so many of us won't, will not look forward to the coming of Christ because we're living in so much sin and we're not, even, we're not living for the Lord that we're like, I just cannot wait for a little bit. Can dad come home a little later tonight so I can continue doing this? And what I'm saying is don't live foolishly like that because none of us know. Like, you don't know when you're going to die. My friend didn't know when they were going to die in a car wreck last week, right? You don't know when you're going to die. You don't know, even if you don't die, you don't know when Christ is coming back. All we do know is that God has asked us to conduct ourselves with fear throughout the time of our exile. He has asked us to be holy as He is holy. And He's asking us to look for the hope and the grace that's going to be brought to us at His return. And that's what Christmas is about. It's about Christ coming down as, as a baby, incarnate, clothed in humanity, to give us the law fulfilled. All right? To give us the Mosaic law... A, a, David couldn't do it, Manasseh couldn't do it, Hayden couldn't do it, you couldn't do it, but Christ could do it. And he says, this is the king that you guys can follow. This is the king who will administer my law and my covenant to all people. And here's what Christ says. Literally, the first words Christ says when he comes on the scene is this, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent and believe in me. That's what your king has said. You want to follow me? You, you want to live for me? You want to trust me? You want to be with me where I am going? You need to turn from your sin. You need to trust in Christ. And then you need to be living in fear throughout the time of your exile and looking forward to the return of Christ. That's what Christmas is all about. Without the return of Christ, Christmas means nothing. But because Christ was resurrected and will return, Christmas means everything to you and me. Let's be looking forward to the return of Christ, and let's be living out this Christmas with, with utmost thanksgiving, with, with the understanding and, and, the, and, and the foundation. I'm going to go, and I'm going to be reconciled to people when I leave this, when I leave this room. I'm going to go, and I'm going to make things right with people. And if you're in here, and the first person you need to go make things right with is God, all you've got to do is turn from your sins and trust in Christ. That's the promise of Christmas. Pray with me. <clears throat> God, we're grateful that you have made a way, that, that Christmas uh, was the culmination, the, the climax of, of, of history in, in regard to the covenantal promises that you have given us that no one could live up 
to the standard of being in holy communion with you. And so you had to give us yourself to come be the perfect person. You had to give yourself in human flesh to give us a king who would uphold your law, who would uphold your promises to all people. And we're grateful, God, that this morning we look in your word and we can see how you have just weaved in grace and mercy throughout all of Scripture. And that you have weaved grace and mercy into the lives of all of us who sit in here. The fact that we're even in here listening to your gospel is just the proof of grace and mercy flowing in the lives of everyone in here right now. Because you have extended so much grace and mercy that you want everyone to hear about how they can be in holy relationship with you. And what, a, what an amazing gift that is this morning that, God, that you have desired and set up church and history in such a way where what you want every single weekend and week out for the rest of history is for people to come here, how they can be in right relationship with you. What a loving God where you have just instituted that worldwide that people would come and hear your word every single week so that they would respond to you. And that for those who are in you, God would learn how to live more for you. God, what a great gift of Christmas that is. We do thank you for this time. God, we pray that as we continue in worship, God, that we would remember what this season is really for. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.